You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. A few months back, I was invited to a conference, which looked kind of, how do I say this? Bullshit? It just seemed like a lot of academic mumbo-jumbo from a lot of different scattered disciplines. Not really my bag. But I'll tell you why I went. Because the conference was hosted in Biosphere 2. Okay. We're going to let this other uh, modified tour go through, and then we're going to walk down to the rainforest. Biosphere 2 is in Oracle, Arizona. It's an enormous glass palace spanning over three acres, complete with onion domes and geodesic ziggurats. It's basically a greenhouse in the desert with the feel of a landed spaceship. There were lots of other groups taking tours of Biosphere 2, and we were all shuffling past each other on these narrow walkways. Um, right down there, um, on the floor, was where the farm used to be, when the eight people lived inside of here. Now, before this conference, all I had heard about Biosphere 2 was that in the 90s, some scientists had attempted to live in this glass palace, sealed off from the rest of the world, and that it had been a huge failure, just this massive debacle that didn't go anywhere. And now there's this big, fancy glass monument to this catastrophe in the middle of the desert. That's all I knew. Biosphere 2 was a utopian vision, intended to be a literal microcosm, a perfect replica of Earth in all its ecological variety. Inside this greenhouse are several biomes. There's an artificial ocean, a synthetic rainforest, and an artificial desert walled in from the real desert outside. It's breathtaking, and it's called Biosphere 2 because we all live on Biosphere 1. Biosphere 1 is the Earth. Quite brazen to name this structure essentially Earth the sequel. But as we all know, sequels kind of suck. They had to make an agreement that they would brew coffee only when enough for everybody. And that would turn out to be one cup of coffee every two weeks. Oh, come on, let me hear it. Come on, I need some groans. But overall, in the tour of Biosphere 2, there weren't any real mentions of catastrophic failure. Like, difficulties, yes, but nothing that would deem it a fiasco. So the eight people came in. They stayed in here for the two years. Big requirement was to grow all their own food in here. And, you know, they had some trouble, you know, with that from time to time. How were the participants selected? Uh, the participants were selected, they say, by the pool of their talents. They were, mm, I call these people adventuresome researchers. And the tour guide never mentioned if this whole experiment, way more elaborate than any experiment I'd ever heard of, found anything out or who had funded these adventuresome researchers. Actually, there wasn't much tangible information at all on the tour. Who designed that? Um, I don't... Mm, they had individual experts coming in, like rainforest experts and desert experts. There's lots of... You can find out a lot of that information uh, searching online. Um, ask Alexa. <laughs> okay? She would probably know. 
Alexa, what were the results of Biosphere 2? Sorry, I don't know that. Damn it, Alexa. I can check Wikipedia myself. I left the place with far more questions than answers. Biosphere 2 seemed way, way, way too elaborate and beautiful a structure for one experiment. And those abandoned greenhouses on the far east side of the property seemed like skeletons in the closet. This is Nice Try, a podcast from Curbed. Our first season is called Utopian. It's about the perpetual search for a perfect place, which, according to the etymological roots of the very word utopia, does not, in fact, exist. Even if the building is still there. I'm your host, Avery Truffleman. Biosphere 2, for a long time, has been shrouded in mystery. I was sitting in a biology lecture with the great professor E.O. Wilson. This is Rebecca Ryder. And he was talking about Biosphere 2, and he said, well, this is why we have to take care of the planet we have, because people tried to make another world at Biosphere 2, and it was a disaster. So <laughs> take care of the Earth, kids, <laughs> something like that. And that kind, of, that kind of piqued my interest. That was in a Harvard environmental studies class. Rebecca actually went to Biosphere 2 in 1999 through a summer course with Columbia University. And same as me, once she got to this giant glass palace in the desert, she couldn't find a lot of details about what actually happened there. She asked around to her teachers and facilitators in the program, and she got nothing. No one would tell her the whole story. Not even someone who was a part of the experiment. One of the so-called Biospherians. We heard at one point that one of the Biospherians was coming to visit, but he wasn't allowed to talk to any of the students. So Rebecca snuck off and started looking around. After all, this is where some of the Biospherians lived for two years. And she started to find bits and pieces of their lives there. We heard from one of our professors that the Biospherians had this theater company called the Theater of All Possibilities. And we actually found some of the scripts from their plays were still kind of hidden, tucked away in the Biosphere library. The core team behind Biosphere 2 was a group of people that we're going to refer to as the Synergians. They were amateur scientists and actors. And back in 1969, the Synergians formed what was kind of a company and kind of a foundation and also, although they would vehemently deny it, a bit of a cult. You know, it wasn't some sort of stereotypical 60s commune where people were just getting high and partying or just trying to grow their food or anything like that. Like People had big aspirations from the beginning, and a lot of that revolved around the leader, John Allen. John Allen. He was a man with an insatiable interest in everything. Ecology, culture, machinery, art, business, really, nearly everything. He lived like he was addicted to life. He studied anthropology. He worked at a meatpacking plant in Chicago. He helped organize for the union, and then he was a machinist in the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and then he got a master's from Harvard Business School, and then he worked as a metallurgist. And then he just took off and traveled the world for two years. And in his travels, as he was doing his own eat, pray, love thing, he met his first wife, Marie Harding, and he became fascinated by the ways different cultures were shaped by their histories and people and environments. It's a little cliche in the life of a charismatic leader, but this world journey really shapes John Allen and brings his one true passion into focus. 
Synergetic civilization. Uh, the idea was to learn to, to work harmoniously with the earth and to harmonize our technologies with the wilderness, you know, so that we could be kind of wise managers rather than just a plague on the planet. Rebecca wrote a beautiful book called Dreaming the Biosphere. I can't recommend it enough. And in her research, she spoke with John Allen and almost everyone involved in the Biosphere 2 project. Many of them still live at the place where it all started, Synergia Ranch, a 160-acre settlement near Santa Fe, New Mexico, that John Allen and Marie Harding founded in 1969 using Marie's family inheritance. They took its name from Buckminster Fuller, who coined the word synergistics and studied how systems were more than the sum of their parts. There, at Synergia Ranch, John and Marie and a select few lived and embodied Ecotechnics, a synergy of art, ecology, technology, and enterprise. They planted fields of food. They put on plays. They listened to hours of philosophy lectures from John Allen. And the ranch attracted followers from all over the world. And among these followers was a man named Ed Bass, who came from a family of oil tycoons in Texas. His fortune was, and still is, basically endless. And so, fueled by Ed Bass's generosity, the Synergians start building projects, looking outside their desert ranch. And they begin with exactly what you'd want if you had all the money in the world. A boat. Great, let's build a boat. No one knows how to build a boat? Great, we'll figure it out. Okay, now we've got a boat. Um, where's another crazy place that we could set up a project? They called their ship the Heraclitus. And then the world became their oyster. So they started um, buying up other properties and starting ecological projects all over the world. So they bought a ranch in Australia. A farmhouse in the south of France, an art gallery in central London, a slice of rainforest in Puerto Rico, a performance art center in Fort Worth. And the Synergians trotted around the world from one property to another or sailed around on the Heraclitus. They're interested in getting to know the world's ecology by buying into as many of the world's environments and cultures as possible. They wanted to learn to ranch and farm and write and build and create business ventures. And all the while, in every place they went, they put on plays. John Allen saw theater as a way to, literally, act out all problems and conflict. The Synergians performed the classics to reenact history, and they wrote new plays about their own experiences and shared them with the many people they encountered all over the world. This was the aforementioned theater of all possibilities. I mean, I have to be honest, when I heard about all of their travels all around the world to, like, fulfill their fantasies of being ranchers and sailors, I'm like, this is some boomer nonsense. This is crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my, yeah, I think that was part of the fascination of my friends and I studying the, you know, wanting to know about the biospherians when we were in university, too. It's like, oh, well, we're young. We've got a lot of hopes and dreams. Oh, could someone give us $200 million? <laughs> they were young. They were rich. They were curious, they were fearless, they could act out anything and learn by doing. The Synergians were explorers and masters of all worlds. And so they searched for the next frontier, which led them to Biosphere 2. Okay, we've, we've, we've figured out how to live on Earth, but could we go further? 
And, um, you know, it was the early 1980s. The space race was a really big deal. In the eco-technical merger of art, ecology, technology, and business, the Synergians envisioned a new way to go to space. You know, we don't want to go to space in a tin can. We want to build a whole ecosystem and live on other planets. The Synergians weren't interested in freeze-dried meals and pouches and catheters and all the sterile trappings of NASA space travel. No. They wanted something utopian and Edenic. They dreamed of a biosphere, a self-sustaining system with lush waterfalls and wafts of frankincense. But first they wanted to build a prototype, a paradise that would be sealed off for a hundred years for humans to observe, to study how we could one day live in space, sure, but also something more. An ecologist who helped build Biosphere 2 told us that their work was motivated by the Gaia hypothesis, which proposes that the whole Earth is a self-regulating system. This hypothesis, of course, would be insanely difficult to test, but Biosphere 2 offered a possibility, a chance to watch how life, environment, and atmosphere work together as a complex, singular, shifting system. A system of true synergy. In some ways, Biosphere 2 was another kind of theater. A theater where pure life could play out before your eyes. Yeah, I believe there's an element of that. Um, Not theater in the sense that it was something fake, but in the sense that there was always a a narrative, uh, a story that people were collectively trying to believe in around what they were doing. You know, that they weren't just building this facility in the desert. They were building another world. With a savanna, a rainforest, a farm, an ocean, And all these habitats would be populated with life. You know, no, we're not just going to have a lagoon. We're going to have an ocean, and it's got to have a tropical coral reef in it. And goats and chickens and pigs and tilapia and adorable little monkeys called bush babies, which were brought in just for companionship. Eight Synergians would be chosen to live in the biosphere. Four women, four men. They were of varying ages and backgrounds from all over the world, but you better believe it, they were all middle class and white. The Synergians consulted with scientists to craft complete ecosystems for this confined world. And it turned into a very delicate puzzle. It was funny because they would, you know, have sometimes end up arguing with each other because, for example, someone wants some plant that needs to be pollinated by bats. But then, okay, then we have to have bats in the biosphere. But if we need to have bats in the biosphere, we have to think about what a bat eats. And a bat eats this many bugs per night, so we need these kind of bugs. And so it gets very complicated very quickly when everyone's putting together their wish list of species. Of course, there wasn't the space to include every creature in every ecosystem. So they got some of the plants and animals and then assumed that the humans would figure everything else out. They, the people, would till the soil and pollinate the plants and regulate all the systems and keep everything in check. In this initial test run of Biosphere 2, it would be sealed for two years. And it was assumed, sadly, that not all life inside would survive. But that's part of the science. They wanted to watch it all play out. So we just need to put everything in at the beginning, and hopefully nature will sort out a balance. But make no mistake, this wasn't exactly natural. One of the great contradictions, perhaps, is that it had this huge uh, diesel-fired power plant because so if you're going to put a, a greenhouse in the Arizona desert, it's going to get pretty hot in there. 
So they needed a huge amount of power in order to keep it cool. As you can imagine, this little project is running up quite a bill for Ed Bass. And this glass palace of lush rainforests with artificial rain next to deserts, next to chickens and goats in the middle of the Arizona desert, was attracting a lot of attention. In 1990, the Washington Post runs a feature about it called Brave Small World. They actually describe it as, quote, a band of latter-day Noahs building a state-of-the-ark surrogate planet. The press adores it. The media actually wasn't critical of it. There was all this really glowing coverage. They, I think they really tapped into this kind of weird American, like, oh, space is just the next frontier spirit. With national and international attention suddenly focused on Biosphere 2, this project that was just supposed to be one of the Synergian's many undertakings, the stakes became high. It needed to be perfect. It needed to be right. And so the crazy thing was that as the pressure mounted and there was more and more media coverage while they were building the biosphere and leading up to going into it, there was a huge amount of stress on the managers of the project. And so John Allen, from my understanding from talking to people who were around him, was that uh, he'd always been really volatile, but he just started to treat anyone who pointed out any problems as though they might be um, a heretic rather than actually listening to them. In September 1990, just a few months from when the Biospherians are supposed to get sealed in, a couple of them decide to open up to John Allen about something they'd been worried about. They were pretty sure that the agricultural area in the Biosphere didn't have the capacity to feed eight people all year round for two years. This was, of course, concerning, particularly for those about to be trapped in this place. But the two whistleblowers were fired. According to Rebecca Ryder, John Allen didn't want to entertain the notion of failure. He had to present a good public face. One whistleblower was actually brought back on the project because John Allen fired and hired a lot. It was just chaos and madness getting this experiment set up right through to the big opening day. They were working so hard to get inside the biosphere that right as they were doing the ceremony, the final construction crews were actually still inside the biosphere and like running out the back doors while they heard that the biospherians were about to come in. So it was absolutely down to, down to the wire. After the break, we go inside. This week on The Gray Area, Professor Diana Posulka and I tackle one of life's biggest questions. Are we alone in the universe? What would it take for you to step off the agnostic ledge and say, yeah, aliens are real? Is it a spacecraft landing on the White House lawn? Well, something that was anomalous in 1952 did fly over the White House. And that's one of those cases that is still weird. <laughs> That's This Week on the Gray Area, available wherever you get your podcasts. How did you feel when the door shut behind you? Uh, terrified and exhilarated. <laughs> this is Mark Nelson, a biospherian. I was the second oldest. I was 44. Mark had been working on developing the biosphere for years. And inside, Mark was going to be in charge of waste management. After a huge ceremony with lots of fanfare and speeches about a new frontier, all the Biospherians, dressed in matching jumpsuits, looking like the cover of a Devo album, all filed inside the glass palace. 
and then the door shut behind them. And then suddenly, my God, there are only eight of us in this world. And nobody had any idea, really, if we would last uh, in there a week, a month. You know, so there was a great sense of adventure. Suddenly, you know, this is, this is reality. This is the, the show has begun. The experiment has begun. The Biospherians shed their heavy jumpsuits. Those were just for show. In T-shirts and jeans, they went about exploring their Eden. So we were theater types, and, you know, we were actually planning to do some theater inside. They managed to do some theater and make some music and run some small science experiments. But in the end, it turned out what the Biospherians did inside was farm. They farmed, and they farmed, and they farmed. They became, by Rebecca Ryder's account, little more than high-tech peasants. Because we knew if we didn't grow it, we didn't eat it. This was beyond subsistence farming, because they were also maintaining an ocean and a rainforest and a desert. And with a lack of bees, they were pollinating plants by hand, and they were clearing algae. They were controlling the wind and the rain. They were gods. And they were very, very mortal. All at once. All of that, you know, intellectual understanding I had about the relationship between myself and and people and the biosphere actually got into my viscera. Every human action had a natural reaction. The humans and the biosphere were deeply dependent on each other. If they so much as used scented shampoo one day, it would be in their tea the next. In a closed system, like Biosphere 2, it's like throwing out a boomerang, and the actions that are put in place have impacts. And in this way, Biosphere 2 was a perfect replica of Biosphere 1. We are connected and dependent on our environment. It's just that out here in our biosphere, we forget it sometimes. My gosh, we our farm went beyond organic because anything that might build up in our soil or water or air it would stay there. And so to avoid using chemicals, their diets changed to fit what the biosphere could produce. Biospherians mostly lived on the easiest crop to farm, sweet potatoes. The palms of their hands turned orange from all the beta-carotene. They found ways to turn sweet potatoes into pizzas and casseroles, and they also made recipes like banana smoothies and banana wine. But it never seemed like enough. You would eat, you'd come in hungry, and you'd have a meal, and you'd go away just slightly less hungry. They all lost weight. A lot of weight. They were farming all day and eating very little. And through the transparent walls of their glass palace, tourists could come and watch the incredible shrinking Biospherians on display in their enclosure. We would look at people who were getting larger and larger as we were getting thinner and thinner on our Biosphere 2 diet. So it was kind of hilarious in in certain ways. Mm, Not all the Biospherians thought it was hilarious. As they became thinner and more ornery, the group split into two factions. One essentially saying, we're starving. Clearly this experiment was ill thought out and the people on the outside don't really understand what they're doing to us. We need to open up the seal and get more supplies. Our man Mark was a part of the other group, who more or less said, listen, this is all part of the experiment, these trials and tribulations. We opted for this challenge. We're lucky to be here, and we need to stick with it. 
These became two warring parties. Imagine for two years, you only have eight people in your little world, and sometimes four aren't really even talking to the other four. But they still collaborated to run the biosphere. But there was absolutely no human warmth between the two factions. And there was another huge problem. In addition to the food scarcity and interpersonal tensions, a problem eerily reminiscent to our own Biosphere One. There was too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. It got to the point where, you know, it was kind of like being on top of a mountain. Like they were, um, you know, you'd be panting going up the stairs type of thing. At first, they didn't really know why. But this was a problem they should have been paying attention to from the start. According to a 1993 New York Times article, the Biospherians planted five to ten times more organic matter in the soil than you'd ever get on the outside. So every sweet potato they pulled from the earth, every time they disturbed the soil, they would release that much more carbon dioxide. The Biospherians started to have trouble breathing and trouble thinking and trouble lifting and trouble working. And again, the rebel faction says, stop the experiment, we need to pump more oxygen in here. The loyalist faction says, we need to learn to manage this. But it becomes unbearable. I think the highest it got at one point was around 4,500 parts per million. So perspective, what people are freaking out about on the Earth is getting past 400 parts per million, which we're now above. There, it was 10 times higher in there. It was a constant drama trying to keep CO2 down. And it gets so dire, all the carbon dioxide in the air, that eventually both parties agree they need an infusion of oxygen pumped in the space. And they get one. And the Biospherians run around with glee, finally able to breathe and think again. But it doesn't last long. The air was still thin. And they were still producing more and more carbon dioxide every day. And they were still starving. And the dissent and hatred in the group deepens. Because, as predicted by the ignored whistleblowers, the biosphere couldn't sustain eight people for two years. The biospherians quietly began to eat their supply of seeds. These were intended for planting, but they were just eating them raw. And this might not seem like a big deal, but to the biospherians, this seed-eating was a dark secret. I mean, there was just this absolute terror that, that it was going to be found out by the outside world. The outside world couldn't know how desperately they were starving and see all the shortcomings of this experiment. Their leader, John Allen, conducting everything from the outside, needed it all to appear perfect. Because, as hectic and dramatic as it was inside Biosphere 2, it was even crazier on the outside world, in Biosphere 1. Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden, but this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there's no way 
that, that Israel should be able to participate in your... Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. In the outside world, Biosphere 2 is no longer a press darling. Because the media clung to this one question, the question that told the simplest story, which was, will the eight people last inside without taking anything in or out? And using that as the main metric of success, like it was just this sort of um, reality show, and if anyone broke what the media perceived as the rules, then the whole thing was a failure. There was that infusion of oxygen, And one of the Biospherians cut her finger and had to be rushed to the hospital and back. And that was all known in the media, um, but I think probably contributed to this idea that these people have failed. In 1992, the Washington Post publishes another article about the experiment, this time called Biosphere 2, Bogus New World? More and more journalists start to dig into the history of Synergia Ranch, looking at the commune culture, the art, the oil money-funded projects all around the world. And this all starts to seem rather unscientific. The romance of the modern Noah's Ark narrative seems to have lost its luster. And then the question emerged. What are these biospherians even studying? The model of science that prevails in our culture is that we control everything And then we change one variable, and then we'll learn something. And that's how we we know things. And that's really different from the idea of living with an ecosystem and understanding how to live with it and work with it so that everyone can survive. But how do you study that? Biosphere 2 was about observing and attempting a whole new world by a bunch of people who mostly did not have degrees in sciences. According to Rebecca, Ed Bass, the financier of this project, is deeply mortified. What an embarrassment. He needs to get this project back on track and prove its scientific integrity to the media and the outside world. He hires his own group of scientists to help make it sciency. And his scientific advisory committee starts a review, interviewing staff who have worked on the project, like Tony Burgess, the ecologist who helped design the desert in Biosphere 2. He was the one who made sure it was like a real desert. Any idiot can design a, a what you call a Disney desert, you know, strip, throw down a, a, a bunch of gravel and put plastic underneath it to keep the weeds down and, and appropriately side a few plants and rocks. But that's not really a functioning desert, and it doesn't evolve at all. Because that was what the whole project was all about. Evolution and growth and change. It was organic and Edenic and chaotic, not a test of one solid hypothesis. It was a different kind of research, which is why Tony thought the scientific review was going to be totally pointless. How could these traditional scientists begin to understand what they were going for? The whole thing was a waste of time because it didn't have any controls. It had people involved. It was messy. It was an interesting natural history thing, but it wasn't real rigorous science because it wasn't a designed experiment. 
I knew failure was highly likely, but in the process, if we kept going, we would be way ahead in changing the entire relationship between people and the living planet. And the day before Tony gets ready to go before the Scientific Advisory Committee and defend this grand experiment, Tony gets a call from inside the biosphere, from one of the rebels. One afternoon, I got this call from Jane Pointer right before the meeting, and she says, I'm worried that the cover-up's going on, that we're, we're eating into our seed stock, and, and John Allen told us we can't tell that to the Science Advisory Committee, and, and I don't know what other cover-ups are going on. Tony is concerned for the group, for the world they had built. He had been watching the Biospherians get thinner and thinner behind glass. But it was in this moment, when he got this desperate call, that it finally occurred to him. This truly is theater. This is a production. And people are getting hurt in this grand display. I got concerned, of course. And, and, and fortunately, you know, I felt like I needed to, to say that to the uh, advisory committee, and that apparently discredited things way more than I intended. Tony shares his concerns with the committee. And as Tony expresses his misgivings, it dawns on him that this might be it. This might be the death of the experiment. And in a way, it was. John Allen told me later, he said, Dante reserves the lowest level of hell for people who betray. And, and um, yet I couldn't figure out what I could do not to betray somebody. Management tailspins into furious chaos. The Scientific Advisory Committee actually breaks apart because some of the scientists resign, seeing no ways their suggestions would actually be properly entertained, and other committee members get fired. Ed Bass and John Allen begin an all-out battle for control of the project and the direction it's going to go. But here's the thing. Eight people are still inside the biosphere. They really dislike each other. They're starving. They're foggy-brained. But, yes, they actually stick it out. They complete their mission. They spend two full years inside the biosphere, living on recycled water and recycled waste and the food they farmed. It's amazing. When they finally file out of the palace, donning their jumpsuits for the second time, now hanging off their bony frames, they're given baskets of food as welcome back presents. But the processed food in the outside world makes them sick. It's too rich and unnatural with too much sugar and salt. The Biospherians had been changed. They did live in there for two years, sure. Obviously, some things are going to go wrong. But where did this idea come from that the whole thing failed? The Biospherians didn't even just survive the experiment. They learned things. A new amoeba was discovered inside Biosphere 2. It was named Euhyperamoeba biospherica. And most ironically, one of the great failures of the project, the loss of oxygen, kind of ended up helping its scientific reputation just a little bit. Because the concrete walls and flooring they had hastily installed in Biosphere 2 hadn't had time to properly cure. And this unfinished concrete actually helped soak up some of the carbon dioxide, which might have been the guardrail between life and death for the Biospherians. This haphazard mistake became a bona fide minor scientific discovery. But at what cost? Literally, Biosphere 2 cost 50 to 75 million to operate during that two-year mission. 
and it cost $200 million in total. Where is the return on the investment when the investment is a greenhouse that's just supposed to mimic the Earth for 100 years because we don't know what'll happen, but it'll be something? And now, after this first experiment basically becomes a laughingstock, there's a lot of pressure for Ed Bass to redeem the project's reputation. There's pressure for John Allen to rally support. They have built this crazy thing, and now they are saddled with it. And so, because science is continually iterating on experiments, and maybe for lack of better ideas, they do it again. They start a second Biospherian mission. My name's Pascal Maslin, and I was a member of the Biosphere 2 construction team, and I was also a member of the second closure. Pascal Maslin wanted to be in the Biosphere ever since she first heard about the project. She was close with the Synergians and had sailed around the world with them on the Heraclitus. Although, with this second Biosphere experiment, not everyone is a Synergian. Now they have an experienced agriculturalist who can actually grow stuff other than sweet potatoes. So I gained weight when I was in the biosphere, probably the only person to. Pascal says she had to quit smoking inside, so that was probably why she was the only one to gain weight. But she also drank a lot of banana wine, whatever. The point is, the food situation this time is fine. But meanwhile, management is still at each other's throats. Ed Bass files for a restraining order against John Allen and the Synergians. In Bass's home state of Texas, the court issues those orders. And this is where we get to Steve Bannon. Yes, that Steve Bannon. A 40-year-old pre-Breitbart Steve Bannon, who at the time was a corporate takeover specialist. We got a call about 10 o'clock on uh, April Fool's Day, April the 1st, saying that there'd been a management takeover and that we were going to have a meeting at lunchtime. And I thought it was a joke. At this lunchtime meeting, Pascal says, Steve Bannon appeared on a screen. He was in mission control. And Steve said, you know, this is a hostile takeover. Um, If any of you want to leave, you can leave. We can open the doors. We can let you out. You know, and we're just kind of like, oh, this, this, this might be real. It was very real. On April 1st, 1994, private security forces and U.S. Marshals stormed Biosphere 2, fully loaded with guns and armed cars. It was a coup, a hostile takeover in the name of Ed Bass, orchestrated by Steve Bannon. Federal agents kicked Synergians off the premises, while John Allen and his team watched helplessly from afar. You you talked to Steve Bannon for this, right? I did. I wish I knew where he was headed, because he just kind of seemed like this boring banker guy who just gave me kind of straightforward answers. But admittedly, now that I know more about Steve Bannon, I understand some mysteries about Biosphere 2. Like, was it really necessary to send in a private security force with uh, lots of guns to take over Biosphere 2? Well, Steve Bannon was in charge of that. If Pascal knew who Steve Bannon was, maybe she too would have realized earlier just how real this was. After this lunchtime meeting, she was shocked and deeply worried. The last thing she would ever do is leave. Pascal wanted to see this second mission through. I had put 11 years of my life working towards getting inside the biosphere and creating that biosphere. And, I mean, I loved that biosphere. Like you would say, oh, a woman loves a man. Just that 
complete dedication, love, reverence, um, whatever happened, I would put my best there. Steve Bannon was hired to turn the biosphere around. He has to make it make money or give it clout, something to give Ed Bass a return on his investment, or at least save it from embarrassment. They start opening up Biosphere 2, so it's not completely sealed. It becomes, say, semi-porous. Scientists and researchers are invited to fly into Arizona and stay in the biosphere for a night or two and then leave. The second crew of Biospherians start to wonder what they're doing there. If it's not sealed off, then what is Biosphere 2? What's the point? It turned into another kind of theater, a stage for conferences and presentations, all trying desperately to lend this place credibility. Steve Bannon cuts the second closure short. After just six months, the second crew of Biospherians are discharged, and Biosphere 2 is scrubbed clean of all traces of Synergia Ranch. Any evidence of murals, of theater, of sculptures, these were disposed of. And the old Synergia buildings were left to crumble into the desert. Bannon had potential plans to license out a Biosphere 3, which would be a themed casino in Las Vegas. But in the end, Ed Bass was determined to make this glass palace a home to something prestigious. Columbia University came in, and he kept giving money to them to try and get it to work. And then they bailed because the university didn't want to keep investing in it. The University of Arizona is running it now, and Bass is still... I was just at the Biosphere about a year and a half ago, and people were saying Bass had just offered them one more grant of, I think, some millions of dollars for a project. And then he's saying, but that's really the last hit, guys. That's really the last one. <laughs> Ed Bass was the one person who Rebecca never got to talk to for her book. And his spokesperson turned down our request for an interview. He shuns the spotlight. Ed Bass's perspective isn't in the narrative, but he is the one pushing the saga on and on. In 2017, he pours 30 million more dollars into Biosphere 2. It's almost like it's too grand to abandon it, but it's also too grand for anyone to figure out what to do with it. All right, do I have everybody here? I think everybody from the conference group. Okay. Now, under the University of Arizona, Biosphere 2 has been divided up into individual experiments, where the biomes are all in separate controls. So down below there is our major water research project of the University of Arizona. They are one of the top schools in the nation for hydrology research. Pascal told us that when she visited Biosphere 2 again recently, it actually struck her as less alive than before. It was no longer this rich chaos of life that had been so dear to her. Sectioned off into parts, Biosphere 2 had become diluted. But in that way, it has been useful. It's been a laboratory to study, in traditional ways, this surreal microcosm and all the ways it's eerily similar to our own Biosphere 1. We anticipate doing a major research project on coral reefs. You may have heard that we have lost about 50% of the coral reef ecosystems on the planet thus far due to changing ocean waters, ocean temperature, and ocean acidity. Back in the late 90s, when Columbia owned Biosphere 2, researchers pumped carbon dioxide into the rainforest biome to see what would happen. They found that above 600 parts per million, trees and plants had trouble absorbing the excess carbon dioxide. They found, as we know now, that carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere, trapping heat 
and warming our planet. Currently, we're at a little over 400 parts per million. So it's not really a number to worry about right now, but it could change, you know, based on population um, increase, based on a continued use of excessive fossil fuels, we could get to that point. And if it ever does, well, we're all going to have to pull together and figure out what we're going to do. But it's nothing to worry about right now. I cannot believe that this is what we are supposed to take away from this place, that there's nothing to worry about. This is just what John Allen wanted to believe when the whistleblowing biospherians were warning him that, yes, he should be very, very worried and do something. The story of Biosphere 2 struck me as a modern fable, one worth telling, especially in the very spot where it happened. Biosphere 2 is proof that our actions boomerang back to us in the world, and it directly illustrates the harms of excessive carbon dioxide. I would say it was a microcosm of some other things, too, you know, including um, the fact that often human dynamics is what throws off our sustainability the most, and the, the fact that we think we know what we're doing, um, and so often we don't, and our attempts to control nature always come back and bite us. It's also proof that people are so desperate to appear successful, they'll ignore warnings of imminent failures, even if it means risking lives. And they will subsequently bury these shortcomings. Shortcomings that turn into parables that are in themselves warnings. These stories that we can't pretend didn't happen. We have lemons, we have limes, we have coffee. All the bounty in this bizarre greenhouse, all the fruits of this labor, are now enjoyed by the tour guide staff. Yeah, we make desserts. You know, we make desserts. We make lemonade in the summertime. Um, Yeah, we use whatever we can in here. And in their telling... They have found a way to turn this lemon into lemonade. So on behalf of University of Arizona and myself, thank you for participating in this tour, okay? And thank you for coming here and having your conference here. Because it is with conferences coming here and all the other guests and the other school groups that we are able to keep this place in operation, all right? So again, thank you very much, everybody. From this point, you will walk up the stairs, go to the door on your left, and walk on out. So what have we found from all these utopias so far? What do they all have in common? They were all largely driven by people who had land and influence. That's right. They were gathered around the will and power of a charismatic white man. But maybe it doesn't have to be this way. Maybe there can be an escape for the people in society who really need it, who want to find a refuge from racism and homophobia and patriarchy. Is that possible? It has to be. Somehow. Next week, in the final episode of our season, the feminist utopia that inspired the story of Wonder Woman. Thanks to Rebecca Ryder, whose research for her amazing book, Dreaming the Biosphere, the Theater of All Possibilities, informed our characterizations of Ed Bass and John Allen, who declined to be interviewed. Nice Tries producer is Megan Kinane. Hey, it's Megan. If you like this episode, tell a friend to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or their favorite podcast app. Our associate producer is Diana Buds. Our editors are Audrey Dilling and Lisa Pollock. Original music and sound design by Greg Pliska. Gautam Shrikashin is our engineer. Our showrunner is Art Chung. Our executive producers are Nishat Kurwa and Kelsey Keith. 
Nice Try Utopian is a production of Curbed and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Avery Truffleman, and utopias do not exist. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.